welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. In fact, experiences matter and where sharing matters because ideas can change our organizations, our communities, and just maybe the world. We happen to be in the great conversation in security today, the risk resilience security leaders. And today we have Sarah Powell from Temple University, Director of Emergency Management. I, I've got to share with everyone, Sarah, uh, that I stalked you through a ASIS uh, communication she's doing. She do, she's doing a series on emergency management. And I was fascinated by Sarah because of her unique take on it that had more to do with almost a neural, a neural way of looking at it than a, a typical emergency planner. So I've got to ask you, Sarah, before we address your perspective on emergency management today and possibly into the future, tell me a little bit about the ideas and experiences that shaped your life and led you to emergency management. Thank you so much, Ron. First of all, I'm delighted to be here. It's really fun to have a conversation with you and with thought leaders you know like you who think about risk outside of the box and really think about the security space in particular um which is near and dear to my heart obviously so my background is actually in anthropology um, i studied physical anthropology and then medical anthropology at mcgill in montreal and as a medical anthropologist, you're looking at the intersections of culture, you know, human behavior, human psychology, community, and how that interfaces with medicine, biotech, um, understandings of risk perception. Honestly, I studied HIV in the 90s and was looking at risk very early on, especially around the perce perception of risk that people take when they're considering their own behaviors. So after 9-11 and after um, the 2001 anthrax attacks, I ended up in public health preparedness for 10 years. And I think that was also an interesting moment because I was able to work in both research and practical application. And that's something I think that's often missing. People are either 100% in the research space or they're 100% in the practitioner space. And if you don't bring those together, you never really figure out how to operationalize what it is that you're learning in the world, what you're learning through research. Interestingly enough, that translates right up to today as we deal with COVID-19. And there's sometimes a disconnect between the researchers or the academics and the actual practitioners who are trying to figure out how do we make this work? How do we deal with a COVID-19 global pandemic and not have our institutions collapse, you know, as we try to take the safest path? So, um, so yeah, I, I, I guess I have a little bit of a, a different background there when it comes to emergency management. Well, you, um, you're, you're also pretty diverse. You were a medical anthropologist by education. Tell me a little bit about that. How do you combine medical with anthropology? So I was looking at epidemic disease as an anthropologist, meaning I wasn't focused so much on the biomedicine of HIV or other kinds of pandemics or epidemics, but I was looking at how people 
and how cultural aspects intersect with that. So I actually studied for my master's um, thesis, I was working in Ireland. And I was in Ireland during the tiger economy. So it was a, it was a real, you know, the Celtic tiger economy, meaning that there was this huge upswing for the first time really ever, um, really at a moment in the early 2000s when you had a lot of tech companies setting up their global European headquarters in Ireland. The standard of living was really quite still low. So people found it, you know, from a business point of view, a great position for them in terms of Europe. However, at the same time, because you had this upswing, you suddenly had immigration into Ireland for the first time. And you had sub-Saharan African refugees coming to Ireland for the first time. They were completely ill-equipped to deal with this sudden influx of refugees and immigrants. And it created a lot of tension. It created a lot of tension around um, even HIV at that time because you had shifted from an indigenous Irish population with you know, kind of a classic pattern of injection drug use and other means of contracting HIV to a new population. And so I was really looking at the historical and political factors there and how that intersects. So you have this disease, but what's actually creating the issues has way more to do with human cultures and society, right? It's how people are grappling with this, how they treat each other. It's not even, it becomes so much less about the bio element of the disease and so much more about the cultural factors. And we're seeing that today, right? With COVID-19. We understand we're learning more and more about the disease, but what's really at play here are the politics and the polarization of opinion and the way people choose to wear the mask in public or not wear the mask in public. These are all behavioral and cultural. So there's a great juxtaposition, right, uh, between the truth that change is the only constant that we really have. Uh, but the juxtaposition is we have a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt about that change. And, and so in the midst of change is this fear, uncertainty, and doubt that obviously infuses and informs somebody who's trying to help people through the change, like an emergency planner like you. Right, right, right. It's definitely very challenging. Very it's, challenging. it's disruptive. Uh, we, we, we as human beings want to hold on to our norms. Right, right. And <laughs> I think this is one of the most, this is something I grapple with. I actually wrote a piece in Medium that I posted on LinkedIn just this week. I, I literally have not had time. I wrote it in March. And I'm really trying to think about that. Like, number one, humans don't like to think about bad things happening, right? And I do believe that there's some evolutionary component there that we had to focus on short-term risks as, you know, I'm talking, you know, 20,000 years ago as hunter-gatherers, we had to focus on short-term risks and we didn't, have the need or ability to really think about long-term risk. And we know we're terrible at this. We know from every angle, retirement savings and, you know, cessation of smoking or, you know, exercising, like realizing that a little bit every day adds up, right? Humans are really bad at, at thinking about risk. And I've been trying to grapple with how we can 
become comfortable thinking about just dealing with the fact that uncertainty and risk are absolutely part of life. And, you know, Nassim um, Nicholas Taleb has dealt with this in his writing about the black swan skin in the game. He, he's really, you know, as a former stock options trader, dealt with risk as a practitioner on a regular basis every single day. He's only thinking about risks, upsides, downsides, and found that people really don't know how to think about risk in a real way, even statisticians. You know, they're looking at risk as though it's all the same sometimes, you know, like all risk is equal. You know, what's the cost benefit analysis? When some risks have a massive upside, an upside that's so severe, it could even be ruin or death. And we treat it as though it's the same, but it's not, you know, it's not. And, 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 go ahead. No, go. No, I was just, it, it dawned on me when you were saying that. And we were talking about this just the other day. Risk is where opportunity and innovation are, are, are born. Absolutely too. Right? So, mm-hmm. you know, you, if you think about some of the major innovations, they came out of highly disruptive events. Absolutely. And this is something from a strategy point of view that is the most interesting thing to me right now, which is if we are open to considering things that feel impossible. So a pandemic is one of those things, right? Last week, we, I had, we have, I'm dealing with a global pandemic, right? Planning, trying to think about how Temple University is gonna reopen, how we're gonna gradually and safely bring people back, all of this. We had looting and riots born of very, you know, real protest, totally legitimate reasons, but the looting and rioting was obviously opportunistic. We had this at the same time. And then we had storms coming through that knocked out the power in the widest possible way for most of the city of Philadelphia. Now, if I had put those three things in a functional exercise or a business continuity exercise, people would have absolutely balked. You know, they would have just said, no way are those three things happening at the same time. It's not (laughs) possible. And I was laughing with other continuity practitioners because I was like, they just would have seen it as completely unrealistic. So that's one question is this idea of imagination. Scenario planners have it right, I think. And Royal Dutch Shell had started this sort of approach to, to strategy called scenario planning, where they're really thinking like, what are the assumptions on which our entire business is resting? And at the time, it was things like that the Soviet Union will always stay together, that it will always be a Soviet Union. Well, if we imagine the collapse of the Soviet Union, we are creating not only we're thinking ahead about what our risks might be, but as you just pointed out, Ron, we're also thinking what an insane opportunity might our company have if we dare to imagine this kind of disruption. And Royal Dutch Shell was ready when it happened, which is so cool. But a company has to say, we are willing to invest in work that might, you know, not come to pass or preparedness that might not come to pass or opportunities that might not arise. 
And what I love about that story, Sarah, is Shell is a public company. So one of their stakeholders is investors. So they're subject to the same pressures and influences of a quarterly report like every other public company. But, but there are people who take care of that. But then there are people that Shell has invested in that ask the great question. And that great question sounds like is preparing Shell for a future that no one else can imagine. I think you're right. I mean, just think. It, it's in small ways too, right? Like Skype. Skype has had 19 years to become the world leading video conferencing platform. <laughs> Who's using Skype? I was on a Skype call recently uh, with, I won't mention who. And I, and I was like, what is this thing called Skype? I mean, it's, <laughs> it feels completely passe, you know? Zoom has completely dominated the market. Although, although you got to hand it to Microsoft. They're trying. They, well, they, they were thinking that, remember, Teams has replaced Skype. True. Right? Right? True. So some, someone in Microsoft is thinking of Skype 2.0. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And, and that's, I think that you're right, though. Like, real innovation requires thinking about disruption. You know, it, it requires thinking about what are the assumptions of, of most people right now in the short term? And if, and if those assumptions collapse, what opportunity could arise? The you know, collapse of the right. EU, collapse right. of the Euro, collapse of, you know, the, the change of the US no longer being a dominant tech leader. You right. know, there's so many things there. Well, I love the first question, uh, and the first question was, can we break down the underlying assumptions on a given business model or even a function? So the under, uh, we're going through that in Seattle right now. We're watching a group of people question the underlying assumptions of a police force. Right. 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 And of course, there's a huge amount of the population who immediately want to reject even the notion of that because it's their norm. Right. They're not going to go there, but can we, to back to your thinking, if we challenge our assumptions of what a police force should be, or whether we even need one, it starts innovation thinking, doesn't it? You're so right. And I think that you, you commented earlier on, you brought up the word fear. And it is fascinating how fear plays in here, right? And into that exact conundrum that the rejection, the full-on rejection of any just willingness to engage in a thought experiment mm -hmm. is really rooted in that, right? It's a fear of this is the way things have always been done. Mm -hmm. This is how we do things around here. Mm -hmm. I think Blockbuster is a brilliant example on a totally different level because they relied on late fees, billions of dollars of revenue in late fees. People hate late fees, <laughs> right? I mean, they sat in a board meeting and said, oh, what's this little upstart Netflix? We could buy them now, but they didn't because they were just in love with late fees. And yet everybody hates late fees. So because they were unwilling to, to kind of examine that, conundrum 
I think that's a big reason why they're gone. It's similar with security and police, right? Like police are doing different kinds of jobs. Mm -hmm. Some jobs are actually probably ill-suited to police, you know, responding to mental health crises or, you know, responding to domestic violence situations. That's right. You know, like there's probably another, there's other models that might work better for components of police work. And I think most people would get behind that, but it's like, you have to be willing to even have the conversation. Well, like as a cop friend said to me, they might be onto something. I think we have scope creep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, it might actually be quite a relief to, I mean, police get, they get only a certain amount of training for these different kinds of responses. Right. And it might be quite a relief to say there's a higher level of care in the same way that when the EMTs show up, the police are very happy to pass that along to the higher level of care. That's right. There's other ways that this could be done to help police so that they don't find themselves in these situations. So let's have some fun here in the, in the last few minutes I have with you, Sarah. Let's turn that idea of assumptions and disruptions imagining a tomorrow without let's let's use that same experiment on on the role the practice that you're currently in can what are the underlying assumptions of emergency management mm -hmm. and can we imagine a future that doesn't require those assumptions well there's some you know i should be i should actually be giving this more thought um by the, by the way, everyone who's listening, everyone who knows Ron Warman always throws curveballs at, at, at the people on my calls. And they're not meant to embarrass. They're meant to say, I love what Sarah just said. I'm going to have to think about that question some more. And, uh, and I appreciate that, Sarah. So, but I'll have some fun with you. Let's just riff and throw some things against the whiteboard and see if they'll stick. What, what under, let's go to the underlying assumptions first. What are the un underlying assumptions? So there's a couple things. Let's think nationwide. Let's think emergency management. Where did it come from? It came from civil defense around nuclear bombing. Right? Wow, I did not know that. Right. So the real advent of, of this idea of emergency management was we could get bombed by the Russians. <laughs> and how are we going to manage an emergency on that scale? Okay. After 9-11, we were like, oh, crap, we really have a problem here. We don't have interoperable systems. And yet the wildfire fighters in California figured it out in the 70s. They created incident command. They created a system that was flexible and a framework that could lock together any jurisdiction. And they got rid of certain things like if you use a code 345, you know, for your sandbagging, they said, forget that code BS, use plain language, say what you're doing so that any jurisdiction will understand it. And that was really a brilliant thing. I mean, the, you got to give it to the firefighters who were dealing with these humongous fires for really, really becoming excellent at incident command. Um, but what are some of the assumptions that are problematic? One assumption is that FEMA is going to save everyone every time. The other problematic assumption is that there's an agency that's going to be prepared for you and they kind of tell you from the top down 
make a kit, be prepared. But people are like, yeah, but there's this agency that's going to come and sort of rescue us all. That is a, such a failure and it's so not working, right? We know it's not working. What, so what is the role of the emergency manager really? It's, it's a supportive agency, but what I'd really love to see is a cultural shift in how we think about our own lives. Like how fragile have I made my own life? How much debt have I taken on? Do I have any cushion at all if something bad happens? Because part of what, you know, it becomes so problematic is that we don't really know how to deal with these large disasters super well. And you hear about people taking advantage of different situations, or you hear about extreme swaths of vulnerable populations that have not, that we haven't prepared for adequately. You know, um, Katrina was obviously a huge example of that. Um, and, and we just, we haven't gotten it right yet. But I think emergency management is a fairly new discipline. Yeah. The other big assumption I think that is problematic and that I've noticed is this assumption that if FEMA says this is the model, then it must be the best model. And so I always kind of laugh when I look at an academic program in emergency management that's literally regurgitating everything FEMA has for free on their website. And it's like, come on. Right. Like FEMA's great and all, fine. But really, like they are the gold standard for the whole world. I don't I don't think that I don't think that we should just assume that every single thing that FEMA puts out is gonna be the yeah. way we should do things. Well, I think uh you you and I live in a fairly litigious world. So you're not gonna get fired if you follow something that somebody else says is true, that has authority. You can see that in the CDC mandates that come out. We've got to do at minimum what the CDC says. That right. keeps us from liability. Would you agree with that? Oh, I definitely think that there's pressure for that. And then you have the same conundrum. I mean, I think one thing right now in COVID-19 that everyone is facing, governors, mayors, mm -hmm. administrators, company leaders is, for a while, you saw you saw parallel what public health is saying, what public health authorities are saying, and what the government is mandating or saying. Mm -hmm. And now you're starting to see this widening place right. where it becomes really tricky. What do you do when the public health authorities are saying one thing and your governor or your mayor is saying something different? Now, whose authority do you follow? It's actually super hard because you might be told open it up or do whatever. And you know that actually the hospital admissions are not going down or there's a higher percentage of COVID-19 positives in your locality. Mm -hmm. It's not really a good idea to do that, to just right. resume operations. So I think that people are going to have a very hard time threading that from what you're from what you're saying from a you know from a legislative and litigious sort of angle. Well, also, I, I'm going to try to summarize how I've heard you through my filter. Um, when I asked you to consider the assumptions, I love you bringing up the background of how this all started, but 
some under underlying core truths in this is that you know people in a crisis want to follow authority that gives them a clear directional response what do i do next right yes yes so they want that centralized control uh and we're talking uh during the incident before Mm -hmm. the incident the authorities whoever's in authority whether it's a campus a government whatever wants to know they have a plan in the event of a supposed emergency that gives direction to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but you also said something really interesting. And I wanna, I wanna tease that one out. How do we in the risk resilient security work with other members of the executive coalition and whatever manifestation of culture we're in, whether it's a university or how do we teach individuals personal resilience that's the really interesting question mm-hmm. that's and i think that's what i'm when you talk about imagining a different way of being mm-hmm. that's i think where my mind is focused in a way because it feels daunting and i don't have the answer you know i i can see what hasn't worked well but I can imagine a world where we create, I mean, I think it's also tied, so it's tied into a couple different things. Robert Putnam is a, you know, a sociologist who is writing, I don't know, this is probably early 2000s or something, about the decline in civil engagement. And he wrote a book called Bowling Alone, you know, so the decline of bowling leagues, the decline of moose lodges, like, that, that civil engagement in general has declined. And as people become more isolated and sort of separate from each other in our societies, I wonder if that's part of it. I, I do think that the element of social capital and resilience is connected um, from a you know, political economy point of view. Like that network effect is going to be part of really being a resilient community. Mm-hmm. And probably part of being a resilient individual. Mm-hmm. I wonder how American individualism and our more recent permutations of that are creating a barrier to community resilience. If you don't see your local librarian as worthy of having a $2 raise because you know the economy is sluggish like what does that mean you don't value those people who serve the whole community i i think that there's a connection there but i'm not 100 percent sure but i i love to imagine us thinking about our own resilience in the long term which requires deliberate thinking right it requires us going beyond just saying um next week I want to have X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to buy X, Y, and Z. It's mm-hmm. got any moment something major could happen. And this applies to business too. You know, like 2008 financial crisis, businesses after that took on more debt, triple the debt that they'd had before the crisis, which is absolutely mind-blowing when you think about it. We're gonna, it's cheap debt. The low, interest rates are low. 
So we're going to take this on like gangbusters. Why? Because we're assuming we're not going to have another crisis. Like you just experienced this massive unexpected crisis. And now you've made yourself so fragile that there's actually companies that are called zombie shells, which are basically living on only extreme amounts of debt where they can't even really pay yeah. the basic minimum payments. That's very, very fragile. And that's why, you know, I'm going back to that idea of fragility because that's what Taleb right. writes about. But I think that there's something to that. Well, metrics matter, right? And uh, if you, if you uh, succumb to the wrong kind of metrics, it'll lead you in the wrong kind of direction. Uh, a metric right now that we think of in our global economy is we should be growing at least 3% a year. Right. So what do you think about that? What do you think? Interesting metric. Interesting metric, right? Because it has all sorts of repercussions through our culture, the way we organize our people, everything around that 3% growth rate. I'm, uh, as, as I plan for my retirement, my wealth managers are saying 3% is your minimum, but 8% is what you should count on. Where are they getting these numbers? They're doing it through the last hundred years of the stock market. I, I, don't, I don't know. So it, it gets really interesting because I know the metrics that influence our behavior today aren't necessarily the ones we should be managing. Uh, and you just stated it so well, back through my filter, using my language. You, you talked about the individual, but the individual, quite frankly, is going to be in some kind of community. It's going to be in a business. It's going to be an institution. It's going to be in an uh, a university. So they're, so now they, whether they like it or not, they belong to a community. So what's the personal resilience of me alone, as well as me that shows up in the community and then in the larger community, the city in which that university lies and then the world. So, so we don't necessarily teach people Temple University. We don't necessarily teach people what that looks like. Right. And so we, and so we end up bowling alone. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I do look for where the pockets are, mm -hmm. where, where that, you know, and, and what the experiments are even for social networks, building social networks in communities fresh, like what do they look like today Right. versus 50 years ago? Right. And which ones are truly successful and which ones are kind of just like a shell. Right. You know, like a social media network could be robust in that they actually meet in person. They join up, they do activities, they organize and mm -hmm. they use social media as a tool. Or it could be something that's a complete shell where it, it, it's tenuous. It doesn't exist beyond social media. Well, what I'm going to look forward, um, Sarah, because I, I expect we'll be having further conversations pulling this cord, but what I'd like to tease out in the future, and I'll let you sit on this for a while because we're not to stage two or three yet in our cities, but I would like to tease out, do we see a radical transformation? Radical. I am using that intentionally. Do we see a radical transformation of how risk, resilience, security leaders, emergency managers need to rethink their position in light of the social and economic crisis we're going to have. 
do, do we need to rethink that now? Are there certain assumptions that you're going to question going forward? I'd love to tease that out in the future. And if I did start teasing out that question, who do we, you and I, invite to the table in the great conversation in the future that we can bring into that discussion? Mm. I'll definitely think about that. I think that we do need to seek out people who are willing to grapple with and aren't afraid to grapple with what that would look like. There's a, there's a network called CADAN, C-A-D-A-N, that are a group of anthropologists and social scientists who are focused on disaster. Mm-hmm. And they are trying to, to get at these exact kinds of questions. Um, and they're also trying to bring together practitioners and researchers, which I do think is critical. Yes. Can't just be one or the other. And, you know, that might be a good group because they did that and they did an analysis of FEMA's work around that sort of top down mm-hmm. education and how much that's failed. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some very interesting people. I'd, I'll definitely direct you to their website with all their bios, but I think there's some interesting people we could. Well, let's, let's, let's start, you know, fail fast. Let's start with trying to determine who would be a good thought leader to bring to the table and, and let's have a, a, a great conversation. Okay, thank you. And Sarah, thank you so much. This has been another great conversation in this community. I'm so glad I stumbled upon you. (laughs) Thank you for chasing me down, Ron. (laughs) And, uh, and, And what I'm going to do, if you don't mind, what I'm going to do is uh, go to our screen here and, uh, and there's your and there's your face again. If for those of you listening on just audio, we're showing Sarah's title and face. We've been uh, basically talking. We talked about a little bit about a book that Sarah turned on to me, and uh, this will be another conversation Sarah and I will have in the future. But I want I want to turn you on to it now. It's called Range: Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World by David Epstein and. Sarah turned me on to it. We're going to talk about that in future conversations. But for now, you can see other conversations at sageconversations.com. This has been another great conversation. Thanks again, Sarah. Thank you.